Welcome to the Elephant in the Room, made by by Bora. Um, I'm Bora. We're going to talk about the elephants in the room in our industry, in the textile industry, in the design industry, from the yarn suppliers, machine suppliers, to the manufacturers that work together with the brands and the designers, and how are we going to do it better? How are we going to make sure that we move in a good direction and transparent direction and sustainable direction and you're gonna hear it all here uh, we're gonna start straight from milan milan design week 2023 hope you enjoy it and thank you for listening welcome to the elephant in the room episode four well welcome thank you for being here we really appreciate it and uh, I have this lovely team here with me today to discuss fairness in supply chains. Um, we're at uh, Bybora to uncover what it means for the textile industry and the players making it possible to really um, realize a better future. Um, but we also want to speak more holistically about supply chains because <coughs> business is interconnected and it's, it's really important that uh, industries influence each other to adopt better practices and ultimately more fair uh, labor conditions for workers, but also um, adopting more environmental responsibility. Um, I would like first to introduce everyone, and then I'll, we, we can get into it. So this is Devin Turnbull, who is um, also known as Ojas, a sound artist. He also co-founded um, Nam de Guerre, a fashion brand. And Wolfgang Muller, um, who is from Mayer NC. He's the head of sales and service. And they innovate circular knitting machines. So you can see what we're trying to do here is really bring together people who might not have uh, sat at the same table before, but will ultimately bring different perspectives to the conversation. David Kayon is from uh, Sydney, as I said, and he is the head of uh, Kayon Design Office. And Marielle van der A is uh, from the Netherlands and works from Montis, uh, which is a furniture company um, that combines innovation and, um, and tradition and craft. So we know that the textile supply chain is fraught with, with crisis and um, unfair conditions for the most vulnerable people. In 1911 in Manhattan, there was a factory fire that killed 143 people and injured countless others. And that, if that wasn't horrible enough, that those conditions continued for nearly a century. I think that all of us probably know here what happened in Rana Plaza in Bangladesh um, in 2013. Over a thousand people died because of a building collapse. And unfortunately, the story is quite similar. Um, in Manhattan, the employee, employers did not want their laborers to leave the factory and they locked the doors and that's why no one could escape. And in Rana Plaza, the conditions were very, uh, very parallel. But why is it still happening a century later? It shouldn't be. And luckily after Rana Plaza, there were um, policies that were adopted. It was a Bangladesh Accord that brought companies on board to change their ways and and um, adopt new guidelines, but there's still a lot of work to do. And the change isn't happening fast enough for the people who are working in these industries. 
So we're here to discuss how industry players can evolve from reactive to proactive and uplift education, research, and opportunity for um, those who are most affected, the people of thousands of miles away, and making the garments, the textiles that we um, sit on and wear each and every day. And we also want to talk about how companies can address labor shortages, as it's a crisis that is uh, mounting in all different markets from India to Pakistan to US to China. So I'd like to ask you all how much you'd say sustainability initiatives have actually contributed to a fair supply chain in the past decade. If you have input on the, the consequence that these initiatives have had, what have the positive benefits been? I think on that point, I would, I would sort of say that um, where, where they've contributed the most uh, at the moment um, would be cultural awareness. Um, so I think uh, the consumer's understanding of these issues where maybe it wasn't front of mind early on or, you know, in history, now it is a talking point, now it is a driver for companies and brands to be mindful of, um, of their supply chain and, and how they're communicating about their supply chain. Um, in terms of the initiatives themselves, um, it's, it's difficult to say. I think there's probably still quite a long long road ahead uh, and it depends on the scale of the company and which market you're in and, and, and those factors, whether, um, whether there's sort of, um, you know, wholesale change happening. Um, but I think the, the driver is probably there, um, being led probably by the consumer. Yeah, and if you ask me, it is, I think, we have to learn what we have done wrong in the past. And we don't have to look and discuss it very long, but we all have done wrong. We haven't looked for the, uh, for the earth and we didn't treat earth that well. More important is the value as an organization where we are right now and how can we change the things that we have done wrong. And this is more important for me to sit here and to have this discussion, okay, you know, I need good partners because we are in a manufacturer in furniture. And um, we always develop products for a long lifetime, but we never communicated that well about what we did and why we did it. Um, but also the new step that we have to make is find good partners, not a lot of partners, but good partners who are trusted and wants to go with our same, uh, with the same values and the same brand values where we're going and then make some extra steps. And yeah, if I look to sustainability in the whole chain and in textiles, um, I think we can learn a lot of what we, yeah, what I told you, what we have done wrong in the past and what we where we have to go to. And yeah, good cooperations, also together with Bora, uh, where we're working at now, yeah, brings us to the other and the new step. And that's the way where Montes wants to go. How can companies find these good partners? Yeah, I think you have to be selected with which partners you want to work. And... Um, uh, stay really short in touch, know what everybody is doing, making really good, yeah, talk about what you want and what your values are and see if there is a match with the values of your partners and if there is a mismatch, yeah, then is it not a good partner and you have to search for other partners. 
so I think we have to jump on the train for a good sustainability. And if your partners cannot jump on this, yeah, it's, it has to be hard, but then you have to search for new partners. I think you have to sort of bring them along the journey. Yeah, like some definitely. of them uh, need to understand that <clears throat> potentially this is important to their bottom line as well. Yeah. That they're not gonna get the they're not gonna get the, the gig or they're not gonna get the work if they, you know, maintain no. sort of older practices. It's and I guess it's <clears throat> it's sort of it's a broader question about manufacturing, like coming out of the you know, the industrial era, we, sort of manufacturing went artisanal, then mass production, yeah. and then I guess we peaked at <clears throat> peak mass production, where it was make as much as you can for as little as little, you know, money profitable, maximise your margins. And now I guess we're sort of coming into this new era where it's not just about the maximum output, it's about all the issues that are around manufacturing. And I think that's, it's potentially natural evolution based on the fact that people are mindful of, you know, what is the, what is the collateral damage of manufacturing and that's, you Definitely, know, you know yeah. certain, you know, communities are uh, collateral damage. They're, they're sort of actually harmed by, you know, the, the search for maximum profits. Yeah. And, and I suppose if, I guess as a, well, with, with Montes, for example, as a, as a um, producer and as somebody that is buying these services from these industries, you can, you have the power yeah. Um, but basically placing orders or not placing orders to tell these manufacturers that, you know, these are the practices that you maybe need to put in place to align with our views and our values. Yeah. If you want to be a supplier, this is the framework that, that we are operating in and, you know, you need to be in that framework. Yeah, definitely. And also it brings, you know, good new partnerships uh, to life and, yeah... That's yeah. really, really important, I think, if you are in the industry where we are at at this moment. Mm. Yeah. I agree that it most likely needs to be led by consumers, especially on like a mass scale. And until there's some kind of grading system that's sort of standardized, it's just, I think it's way too difficult for the average consumer, especially buying low cost items, which on the mass scales, the majority of <clears throat> what's being produced and sold until there's a system in place for people to understand the impact of what they're buying, it's very hard to imagine, you know, change on a massive scale on the kind of bottom line consumer level, like in the, in the, in the malls of the world where most people are, are consuming. It seems to me that this sort of like reporting, the transparency that's just really not there yet is a really critical component of that. I would... I would agree. Yeah. So um, the, the 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 idea of um, selecting partners who will follow your ideas of sustainability that's that's good. But in the end, we are all companies, and companies need to make profit. Yeah. So that will be the bottom line. Eh? When whenever you um, have a partner and he's making everything fine, but the price is what you cannot sell, at least not in a quantity that mm -hmm. makes you. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, profitable, uh, mm -hmm. then, then you have to make compromises. So the last number I've heard was that in apparels this year, I think was 120 billion articles will be produced. Now the question is, how many of those are going to brands? Yeah? Brands have, are powerful and then ca they can, of course, do something. Yeah? Um, whenever we, our major 
markets where we sell machines is, is less or least developed countries. That's India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, uh, of course, China. Yeah? Um, and, and, and there, uh, always those who are producing for brands, they have higher standards. Yeah? But then what follows is, is still low standard. Yeah? And if, if we visit those companies, uh, if you talk with them about sustainability, they they would just make big eyes and say, "Okay, yeah. that's we cannot sell." Yeah. So we, I think um, the point is, um, of course, to have these initiatives is good, but that's a long journey. Definitely. That's a very yeah. long journey until, uh, and in the end, um, I think we cannot all. Um, expect from the consumer that he may select. Because even in developed countries like Germany, I would say the bigger portion, they like the Primark shirts or even yeah, no-name yeah. shirts. Yeah? Yeah. They, they like those yeah? and they can afford. Yeah? Um, but they cannot afford to, to, to buy a lot of brand shirts per yeah. year. So, so to leave it all to the consumer, I don't think this will work. We, we need to have a political decision. And of course, the, the politics listen to the public. So if the public is talking more about sustainability, the politics will follow. And uh, because of this, uh, on, I think it was the 22nd of March, the, the, the EU, EU Commission now has, um, has drafted a law which is working against the greenwashing, which we had seen for years. For years now, yeah. yeah. And why say, okay, those 1% of recycled yarn, so I'm sustainable. I mean, that's not working. Yeah? Mm. No. So, so, of course, but it's a long journey. Yeah? Yeah. And I th don't think that the consumer or we, uh, we, we can influence that. But for me, it's, uh, it's, it's a long journey and it will be the politicians. Yeah? In the end, it, it need, they, they need to have an agreement. And then, of course, with innovations too. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's both of it. Yeah, it's it's political decisions and the political will to do something, mm. and then it's us to make uh, the right innovations to improve on the conditions for the workers. Yeah? yeah, absolutely. How do you think companies will respond to these due diligence standards from the EU? They they will have to follow in in one way or the other. Yeah, um, we in. <laughs> Over the past years, uh, there were a lot of discussions in Germany. That there's a lot of textile labels or sustainable labels. Uh, some brands are creating one, then uh, different initiatives. Then even from the ministry, they, uh, a label was created also with, not, not only with textile, but also with, with the nutrition. And uh, it's, it's always mm -hmm. the same idea. Yeah? So you have a bunch of labels and how you select. Yeah? So for me, it's... That would be one of, of the points that you have a certain, what you just mentioned, a certain standard. And that's, that standard should be not just in Germany or something. That should be on, a, on at least on the EU uh, level, which hopefully this law will, will bring. But maybe also on a, on a bigger standard. Yeah, that bigger yeah, markets I agree. Can I, agree. Agree. I hope I know the EU is really busy to make some new regulations and standards. I hope also there will be an 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 stamp on this, you know, that it will be clear for everybody that it is really sustainable. Mm. And 
that it is not a commercial way, a way of thinking, but that it is really an, a way of thinking in and in a lifetime. Um, um, the other topic is, I think, um, that it is uh, important that you choose where you produce. And we always were in a position to do local production. Mm -hmm. And um, if we take something out of the Netherlands, because we are producing in the Netherlands, if we take something out of the Netherlands, it's in Europe. So we are really trusted partners mm -hmm. in Europe, mm -hmm. nearby us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is also, if you look to a brand, it's really important that a brand will make these decisions by itself. And it is a decision if you go overseas and get your cheap products or cheaper products out of there without knowing what is happening overseas and that you don't be in control about what the processes are there. Um, so it's also a decision of the brands, what they are doing and what they're bringing on the market. Of course, yeah. Yeah. It's a, but isn't that, that's also a question of the scale of the brand and the company. Like a, the bigger, more powerful brands have that capability to yeah. be able to go, you know, far-flung places to manufacture things uh, and then also have the ability to, um, you know, report and assess, you know, those communities that they're manufacturing in where sm smaller brands will probably have to stay more local if they want to, you know, make sure that, you know, they're operating in a fair system. Yeah. You know, a, a smaller company of, you know, limited number of people is more likely if they're going to work with someone far away to not necessarily make the trip over there and, you know, perform an inspection. They'll just, you know, well, it's okay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, bigger brands like, you know, for example, Apple have that power to... Um, you know, they've been moving their production away from China at the moment, but, you know, they're setting up in new areas. Um, they have the power to go into those areas and, you know, potentially influence, yeah. you know, those communities and, and report, and then report back to their consumers mm -hmm. about that. Because I think to, you, know, you can't expect them to do such a lot of in-depth research for every purchase. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, it's a lot to demand of a, of a consumer. The information needs to be there and a bit more readily available. I think it's quite interesting that the narrative with um, with sustainability marketing, uh, unfortunately, those things are uh, now combined, is that it has focused really on environmental sustainability, which is good, right? Because it's a huge crisis and we need to address that. Mm. But there's a huge social sustainability element to that as well. Mm. And I'm not sure if it's because it's too hard for people to confront the impact that they're actually having mm. on human beings and the human cost of what they consume. Um, but I think that, that that discussion really needs to come down to the consumers more as well. They need, to, they need to be confronted with that. Do you think that companies are really doing more to get to know the people and the communities that are producing for them? I don't know if they're doing more. I think companies that have more social responsibility would be doing more um, than it comes down to the individual company, it would obviously be uh, a good thing. And I think probably good long-term for their supply chain. So it depends on what, what term of commitment that those companies have. If they want to build a long-term commitment and positively influence those communities and as a result of that, probably get a better supply chain out of it. Um, you know, longer lasting, um, more sustainable supply chain out of, you know, the communities earning a living wage and therefore those people um, potentially being, you know, 
happier in their work and, and therefore more productive or, or, or higher quality, um, then yeah, if, if they're not going in there and trying to make those changes, then, then they, you know, it won't have the impact. I think it, it's very difficult for um, a lot of businesses operating with manufacturers in countries that are very far away. There's an aspect of out of sight, out of mind, mm -hmm. but there's also like a just a cultural disconnect to like maybe a handful of people or one person from a brand actually visits the factory overseas and doesn't really understand the culture where they're going. They don't really understand the, the living kind of uh, standard, standard of life and, and uh, like it's I think very hard for someone to gauge like what is fair in, uh, in a in a place that they don't really understand what normal day-to-day -day life is like for a factory worker. So, you know, I, th I think it also helps when you have someone in charge of your supply chains, managing your production, who maybe has more ex broader experience with people in the place where the thing is being manufactured. Um, but that's quite rare, you know? Um, I, I know of a few instances where you know, in the textile industry and in the garment industry, a lot of production is in Europe, which is great. So, like, you know, if you have a, um, uh, if you have things being made in Portugal or even Turkey, there are people with personal. Often, the person that knows the factories is either from the the country and is able to navigate those things. But in a lot of industries, in the audio industry, for example. It's, it's practically impossible to make anything at scale in the United States, where I'm from. There are no manufacturers of most of the components that I use in a given product in the United States. Um, so you kind of have to rely on like jobbers, because also, uh, depending on the scale of your business, like most uh, manufacturers have actually never physically visited the the you know, factories that are making their product. And again, I think it comes down to like transparency. It's like, how are we supposed to know what is, like, there's no system for, of reporting. How am I supposed to know, like, if I'm buying this part, you know, how, how deeply that supply chain goes to the uh, supply of the raw materials, places that are, you know, mining, uh, natural resources to, um, you know, making wire or um, paper cones for speakers or, um, you know, and, and in the textile industry as well. Um, but outside of the textile industry, where you get pushed farther out of, uh, you know, Europe and, and even the Americas into Asia, it just becomes like the, the cultural disconnect is another thing that's really hard to navigate. It's a huge responsibility to just put on your shoulders as somebody that's buying the goods to do all that research and make a conscious decision based on that. And, and that's why it's, you know, that's, that's why it's early days probably. And, and to, you know, come back to Wolfgang's point that, you know, it, is, it, it, it does have to sit on the shoulders of policymakers as well to ensure that that reporting is done. But what's the reach? of that legislation. You know, we're talking about legislation in Europe. Is that going to apply to, you know, producers and sub-producers and, you know, people, like you say, who are buying raw material from mines? Where are those mines? I mean, you know, obviously, 
uh, by Bora has done it, if you look at the, the map yeah. behind us, um, but it's, uh, you know, for somebody that's making sort of technological products, that gets really, really, really complex very quickly, and some of those people simply probably don't have the information either. So it's a complex issue. I'm actually thinking I'm American as well, and I remember when calorie reporting became mandatory for, um, for restaurants and hospitality providers in California, where I'm from, and I'm thinking or imagining a system where you're at a shop or you're on an online shop, and uh, instead of the calorie reporting, you have to have all of the, the specs of the product where you're coming from, or at least as close, uh, close to a transparent supply chain reporting as possible for consumers. Mm. At the same time, I also know that there's milkshakes at McDonald's that have 800 calories in them and people still regularly order them because mm. they've distanced themselves from the reality. So what kind of reporting system, at least a consumer-facing reporting system, do you think would actually work? What would have the most impact? I think that, that nutrition is an interesting thing to look at as well because it's a very simple, easy-to-understand system and you can make choices based on, like, I understand that there's 800 calories in a milkshake, but I want to have a milkshake from time to time. I'm not going to give up milkshakes for life because they have a lot of calories, but you should be able to make that decision based on, you know, in that case, your health mm. and, you know, what's a responsible decision that you need to make. But it also needs to be a simple easy to understand system and not one that California is a good example too because California has gone so far with um, you know regulatory labeling the whole prop what is it prop 65 oh, yeah. that like virtually anything you will ever consume can give you cancer <laughs> like how are you, what do you what do you do with that information i know they were <clears throat> they were trying to make uh, coffee have prop 65 a few years ago that it can cause cancer. And everyone's like, well, hold on, like everyone's consuming coffee. What is that supposed to, to tell us? And then, I don't know, I read something that comes down to just it being a hot beverage and that by burning your mouth over and over again, you can get like oral cancer. Mm -hmm. So there comes a point at which, there comes a point at which like how, how, like it needs to be a simple, easy to understand thing that's like not overly burdensome on the consumer and is like, just allows you to make like a gut decision on like, because for sure people will continue to consume fast fashion and their, their score is going to be quite low, right? But, you know, and I think people understand like, um, you know, if I need to buy this year, I need to buy like two button-down shirts and a pair of pants and, you know, you're, you're going to probably have something which is like, scores quite low, but I think on the sort of humanitarian and um, environmental scale, there should be similar to that like calorie rating, something that just says like, that just gives you a sense of like the impact of what you're buying and so, so that you can say like, I don't want to spend more than, you know, $40 on this article of clothing, but that, that, that can then be a part of your decision-making process as well. It's not just financial, it's also, you know, um, you have that information so that you can say, uh, like, I'm comfortable with this, this decision or not. The nutrition right. is a great example. I, I think. Oh, sorry. I, I totally agree. And I think it has to be simple and for everybody the same. You know, then it's understanding for the consumer as well. But if everybody makes his own passport or own lines, then it's confusing and mm. nobody knows how to read it. Mm. So for nutrition, it's a really, really good uh, mm. example. Mm. Everybody knows how much calories means 
the calorie uh, line and the number. And everybody knows uh, about the, the numbers are on the list. So it's it's really good idea to, to work like that. I, I would agree on the nutrition, but if you want to do that on a t-shirt, having so many processes, right. that's not that easy. I mean, we know the ingredients, uh, what, what is in there, fat and so on. Yeah? But in a t-shirt, uh, to have the, the carbon footprint, that's quite a challenge. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, we're starting, when we're doing the, we convert the, the yarn into fabric yeah? and nothing else. Yeah? That is will take some energy and, and so on. So um, then it passes the dyeing process and then the sewing process and so on. Yeah? There's so many processes uh, on the way from, from the yarn to the final product. And I'm wondering how you could possibly do that in detail like you do it on, on nutrition. Nutrition is easy. Yeah? Um, what I heard and one approach of um, yeah, of one brand who approached us, uh, he had the idea to, he, he wanted to know from us, okay, uh, uh, what is the average uh, energy consumption um, of a fabric? And then he gave kind of a standard. Yeah? And then say, okay, that's very complex. Yeah? We have plenty of different machines, more productive, less productive, uh, higher inverter, with uh, oil recycling system, without oil recycling system, and so on. Uh, there's so many um, um, possibilities already in the knitting process, and that's only one process out of many. So in nutrition, I completely agree, that's, that's perfect, and I like that. In what we can get in textiles, maybe, uh, and that, that was their idea. They said, okay, what they, how they will rate it, they will have the monthly energy consumption of the whole mill, let's say that's a mill who's doing the knitting and the finishing, and then the, the kgs produced, and then they just divide it. And then you get an average value, but we all know if you have a lightweight single jersey shirt and you have a um, shakart, whatever, with fill-in yarn and so on, that there will be a huge difference and you only get the average value of this process. So the challenge will be to get to this level what the nutrition is. Uh, I, I have, so far I have no real idea how we can possibly approach that anyway close. Um, well, it's an interesting thing to think about. I think no matter if you could give a totally holistic picture at first or not, but I mean, we have disclaimers on our coffee, we have disclaimers on our cigarettes, we have disclaimers on our food, mm. all these kinds of disclaimers. It doesn't mean people really have to care and no. practice or do, um, but that their awareness maybe shifting the perspective from I didn't know to I knew but I didn't mm -hmm. care. I wonder if that would, would change the discussion at all. Isn't that generational? Like yeah. for example like and I think it's also really about education. So I mean yeah. do you see where do you see education coming into all of this? Well I mean, to come back to the you know to I guess I think I read something that um, you know consumers generation Z consumers or Z depending on where you're from um, they sort of 70% of them care about, you know, the supply chain and those issues. Whereas probably if you go back, you know, previous generations, Generation X or the boomers or were used to not caring. or It wasn't part of the, you know, the dialogue for them. So that probably has something to do with education, probably has something to do with the era that they've grown up in, whether that's, you know, social media or more open conversations about those things and the generation that follows them, you know, again, they're going to build on that. 
So uh, I guess there is an element that we can potentially rely on that to, to, to drive this process a little bit more, provided that you know, the evaluation of these products and those supply chains can be kept relatively simple so that people can make quick decisions because, uh, again, you're not going to research to, you know, in-depth research every single little purchase that you make. It's, it's not feasible. Right. Education for consumers, very important, clearly, but what about education for businesses? I mean, where, where is that coming into play? Is there a sustainability course that businesses can, can take? It's so specific to the different businesses. Mm -hmm. I, I think Wolfgang's example, yeah. the T-shirt mm -hmm. versus the, you know, the cereal or whatever it might be, and then you throw in something like circuit boards. Mm -hmm. um, it's incredibly specific. I think businesses are still ultimately going to be answerable to their, to their right. consumers. I mean, what, what I mentioned before is, um, apart from the policies yeah, and then the political decisions, it's innovation. And... The point is that the, when the consumer is prepared and pushing for that, then, then our innovation can pay off. Yeah, I'll just give you an example. We had in the beginning of the 2000s, our machine would automatically adjust uh, to, to a certain fabric style yeah, uh, with servo motors and so on. At that time, that was too expensive. Yeah, nobody, nobody was ready to pay for it because once you've got this machine and then you put it in a place where labor is cheap and then you say, okay, my people can do that. Yeah. Maybe when, when, when such requests are coming yeah, from, from, um, from the public, yeah, then, then, then with the innovations will come from the industry. Yeah. So um, when the education in, in the public is higher and they, they demand for such thing and, and they would be prepared, that's still a question, to pay more and can afford to pay more, then then we can do these these innovations. Yeah. Yeah, but also I think so. You know, if I look to uh, we are a brand, we are Montes, but we are doing proactive trainings. So mm. we requested our suppliers to do trainings in our uh, company for the internal organization, but also for our dealers, the project managers, etc. So we will train all people who wants to be trained. So it's also a part of, again, look for mm -hmm. ourselves where we yeah. can start. And if you can make small steps and small changes in the whole chain, it's already a beginning mm -hmm. of the next step. Mm -hmm. And yeah, of course, it costs money, but I think we have to do this. We have to bring these trainings. We have to bring the information into the market. Because if we don't bring this information into the market, nobody knows and think, okay, I like this fabric mm -hmm. because it's nice, it, I love the color, it feel, the touching is great. <clears throat> but if you can choose for a product who looks really well, but it's also sustainable, mm -hmm. it brings an extra plus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's also bringing the information to the customer. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for me, it's not a point that I want to wait if people will choose my product because it's nice, it's for me also very important to bring the information into the market. Um, uh, and yeah, this is how we work already. And you know, it's just small steps. And I know we have a tons of work to do to came on the number, the, the number hundreds, you know, we are just probably on number five, but all small steps that we can make, it's so important already to start with. Yeah. I think also like, in 
those certifications about when something, when you're, you're able to, and I guess coming back to food as well, like being able to call something organic or biodynamic, especially in Italy actually, is, you know, there's some specific standards that you have to meet, specific certifications you have to meet, and maybe broadening that in other in other areas like textile production or furniture production or anything really products um, and making the public more aware of that um, would give them the tools as well yeah. to, to be able to make more informed decisions. Because uh, at the moment, I mean, there's some background things, for example, in industries that we work with, timber, FSC certification and, and those kind of things. But it's not really a general public uh, thing. Like if you go and buy a a chair, for example, and it's oh, the Timbers FSC certified. I don't know whether people know exactly what that means. But, you know, different clients will know what that means. So yeah. I think um, certification is going to be an important factor going forward as well. We can look at this as a really long-term commitment, right? But it seems more possible taking smaller steps. And I'm just thinking about... Um, I'm thinking about how we can boost collaboration, obviously, between companies and designers and suppliers to ultimately achieve uh, this more equi equitable industry. But at the same time, I think that businesses also have to look at inclusivity and accessibility within at home, you know, within their own teams. And I'm just uh, curious to know how your companies are handling that. How are, how are you working to diversify opportunities and, and open up doors to people who might not have been included before. You would refer to trainings, in-house trainings for your not own? Not necessarily, but, uh, you, you know, I, I think it, historically uh, there's been a lot of men in rooms. There's been a, a lot of uh, white faces in rooms. And I just, I, I think that needs to change at a company level, not just in the supply chain. And uh, I'm wondering what policies your companies might have adopted to, to address racial bias and uh, gender bias as well. Hmm. Well, I'll start. <laughs> um, well, my, my studio is quite small. We don't have formal policy. We are 50-50 uh, in terms of male-female. Um, we don't really have an executive level. Um, everybody works at the same table. Everybody works together. And I have... Uh, um, in fact, at the start of the year, we were more female than male, but I, I have found that to be uh, really nice and something that I want to maintain. Also, culturally, cultural background of the team is very diverse. We have people from Asian countries, we have people from Europe, um, and people, no one from America, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I have found that that makes for a really nice atmosphere within the studio. So it is something that, you know, we would look to maintain uh, as we grow uh, going forward. Um, from a policy perspective, um, as I said, it's not something that we've formalised. It's, it's just something that happened organically, which um, I guess is also really nice and possibly is it a, you know, industrial design potentially going back, which is our core industry or our core business was potentially more male orientated. Um, certainly when I went through university, it was a huge proportion of male versus, you know, only very few female students. Um, the fact that we've been able to, you know, operate the studio, which is a multidisciplinary studio, the fact that we've been able to have this 50-50 split 
um, uh, is is because I guess I've not looked at just hiring from that pipeline of you know universities, and maybe that could be something that companies could take on as a broader policy. I, I know that if you look for something somewhere, that's the only thing that you'll get. So I think having a broader view to uh, where you're you know, take where you're sort of looking for resources um, is something that some bigger companies are looking at. Um, and potentially, I think, going forward, if you look at the roles that exist within companies at the executive levels, that is really changing a lot. Uh, you know, chief happiness officer and things like this that are very, very new roles that are being brought about by technology, by social awareness and, and, and by, you know, the search for inclusivity or the, the, stri the striving for inclusivity um, is something that uh, would have an effect on, on the hiring policies of companies. Exactly, on our side. We mm. don't have really a policy for that, but mm. it is really a good mix in cultures, mm. in male, female, gender neutral. Yeah. It's really, you know, you yeah. can be yourself and you, you're welcome to work with us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just want everyone to be outspoken in yeah. my studio. So yeah. we, you know, every Friday we'll, we'll have lunch all together. Yeah, and uh, you know, the first thing I say is, you know, who's going to make us laugh today? So it's yeah. like if somebody's quiet in the corner, I don't like that. Um, yeah. and that's really just about standing up and looking around the room, and seeing who's in here, and 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 um, expecting the unexpected from people, which is makes it fun. Being yeah. present. Yeah. yeah. I think zooming back out, it's also nice that we, or good, that we redefine how we look at production, right? When you think about designers, designers have a very uh, very high place in culture because a designer is looked at as the creative, you know, the person that has a vision, the person that executes a vision, the person that inspires others. But production is pretty inspiring as well. So I think maybe replacing value on people who have the, the know-how and uh, the, the skill to make these design products real is uh, is going to be important as well and, and hopefully gets people and businesses more connected with the ideas that uh, they should be treated just as well as everyone else in the supply chain. Mm. We'd like to open the floor up for questions from you, our audience. Anyone would like to start? First of all, thanks. Um, I, I did have a question for, for um, Wolfgang. Um, Sort of, you, you were were telling, especially about where you sell, also uh, the um, machines uh, um, in in Asia, in um, <clears throat> pushing like for a lot of uh, materials. Do you think, like, do you see also the responsibility for for you as a company, like looking at, of course, on the one side on legislation, but as a company also to say like, well here for me is the boundary to what kind of factories I want to sell my machines mm. and what is being made or how much is being made. Mm. Um, <coughs> explicitly not. Of course now, for instance, uh, with, um, um, with uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine, uh, our goods are normal not, normally not dual use. So theoretically we could still sell to Russia, but we don't. Yeah? Um, that was a decision where we said, okay, we stop at this point. Uh, I know others, maybe yeah, tomorrow you to talk to Kurt Becker, they do the same. Yeah? Um, when 
traditionally our customers in, in those countries, as, as I mentioned, are customers who, um, not all, but most of them are producing, um, are vendors to brands. Yeah? Um, so normally their conditions are better than what you can see in, in other places. But um, me personally, I have not, I have not seen um, a customer which I visited, um, and then after that, I decided, okay, I won't sell him because of he's treating his uh, employees bad or, or the conditions are. Also, because I don't think that I can get with this one-hour meeting. Sometimes I get to see the, his production, sometimes not. We're just sitting in the office. So that would be very difficult to rate. Yeah? Uh, if there are clear um, uh, yeah, uh, indications, like in the case of, uh, case of Russia, where, you have, where we just decided, okay, this, we don't support yeah, the industry there for the time being, yeah? then we do it. Yeah? But on an individual base, visiting a customer and then that I haven't in my more than 20 years, I have not experienced such a case where I said, oh, well, this is, uh, this is a place we cannot sell machines. And do you then think that uh, legislation, are, are you worried for legislation to come to have to audit that? If it comes, that's, that's fine because I mean, okay, it depends on if it's a German thing or a EU thing. Our, um, we have uh, only, yeah, there's maybe one or two competitors within Euro, uh, within the European Union, and the rest is in Asia, mainly in China and in Taiwan. So if we are bound to such policy thing due to the European Union and our competitors still can sell, then okay, but we have to accept this. We, we, will, have, we will find a way that, okay, yeah, that's, that would be okay, but let, let's see. Uh, I, so far, um, I, I don't see that, um, that there's a law in design where we are not allowed to sell due to um, the conditions within this knitting mill. Huh? Would you want to be the example? Sorry? Do, do you want to be the example of making the law? <laughs> but maybe we are too small for that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Um, as, as I said, I don't. Um, I don't think anyway that that um, our customers are the most critical ones, due to the price level. Um, normally, we are the most expensive in the market. Um, so that kind of yeah, gets sorted automatically. Yeah? Yeah. Devin, you were saying, uh, I really liked your link towards uh, the nutrition world, like, because I think it's a global understanding of, of, of the calories. I think it's an interesting thing. Do you think that, like for me, the first thing that popped up as a global understanding is taxes? sort of goes over uh, borders, everybody has to pay their taxes. Do you think there could also be a link like towards, like if you have the tax system towards a social taxing uh, and uh, environmental taxing? 
Well, I think we have a lot of social and environmental taxing already in place, but again, it comes back to um, you know if you're operating within one country, every country which is in charge of like taxation is essentially out for their own best interests, right? So like if I sell you something, uh, you know. Your, the country where I'm sending it to is interested in taxing it for the purposes of their own social benefits. Um, the tricky thing is then that that money is not going to the workers making the, the product. Of course, there are local taxes in place, right, for, uh, you know, various, at various stages of, of doing the business. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that that just comes back to like kind of what I was saying earlier about things being like out of sight, out of mind. The farther your production moves from the end consumer, the less they are concerned about like the working conditions of the people making the products or the environmental impacts of the making of, of those things. So yeah, I mean, maybe that's like one of the biggest challenges that we have here is um, like looking at things from a global perspective because supply chains have become so international. You know, I mean, uh, you know, the, the canal closes in Egypt and we can't get, you know, we can't make anything in the United States anymore. Um, but that's kind of invisible to consumers and, and even honestly, like businesses, like when the, you know, that canal closure happened, what was that like last a year, a year or two ago. Um, yeah, the evergreen. You know, there are things that I, I'm like, what do you mean I can't get this one like basic component that's just never been out of stock ever? Like you, you don't even really understand what it takes for that thing to be in stock that may be like uh, an American product that uh, you know, we've had available in the United States for 80, 70, 80 years. Um, but that aspects of that supply chain have moved overseas because we're not, you know, mining the natural resources or farming them. And, and uh, you know, like a lot of labor has just become too expensive in the United States. We don't even understand that, um, you know, where does, for example, when I'm making a speaker, the speaker is essentially like a, a cast aluminum frame, a paper cone, and uh, a magnet of rare earth materials, or Alnico, the supply of the various compounds that go into the Alnico for the magnet, where do they come from? You know, this is like aluminum, nickel, um, you know, where is nickel being mined? Like, I can't tell you exactly where nickel is being mined, but also I am definitely paying import taxes on that raw material, but the United States is, is taxing me on the materials coming into the country, not the country that I'm, I'm buying it from. So yeah, I think that we need like a, a more global perspective, but, but how do you do that? There's no global, there's no EU of the whole world. There's no global, <laughs> there's no coordination in that way. So it's such a, it, that's such a huge concept and topic. It's, uh, it seems so abstract to like wrap your head around. Even post-production, I don't know if, uh, if you've seen this article about this man who put air tags on his uh, 
use clothes and then put them and put him in one of those receptacles where you can donate your things. Wow. And he tracked this journey of this garment as it was supposed to be going, you know, to this ethical place where it could be upcycled or worn again or whatever. And it traveled like all around the world. Yeah. Like, hmm. so, so in that sense, it's like we, we need to strive to transparency through all, all the steps. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we can put tracking elements on all of our new clothes. That might be a little bit crazy, but... Just uh, having the awareness that also what companies say is happening post-production, if they're trying to be sustainable and introducing these new, these new initiatives, is not actually what's being borne out in reality. Quite interesting. Um, I have a question for Devin. Um, what responsibility do you have in the world of health and sound? Health and sound, Aside yes. from materials. This is a this is a actually quite interesting um, uh, topic. It's it's less about the um, often people come to me for solutions for sound and they think of the you know I make things that generate sound. Um, I'm not an acoustician. Uh, I have acousticians that I work with. But in terms of health and sound, this is something that people really undervalue is the value of silence. You know, people talk a lot about noise pollution, or sorry, people talk about a lot about air pollution, even light pollution, but noise pollution is like less of a, of a topic. And I think for a lot of us, as we age and our ears become more sensitive in a lot of ways, um, you know, you start to become more aware of acoustically spaces that are like more acoustically harmful than others. Um, but, you know, I, so I, I often am contacted by people starting restaurants, public spaces, retail stores, bars, hotels, and it is actually very hard to convince them to invest in an acoustic consultant to, uh, to create a space that sounds really good. And by sounds really good, You're not just talking about like music's going to sound good when it's played through a speaker. Uh, often it's just reverberation of people's voices in the room, you know, like uh, in a crowded restaurant, you can barely hear the music, but just people's voices are so loud that you leave the restaurant with like ringing ears because you've been sitting in a room with like 85 dB ambient noise because people are like yelling at each other. They're trying to yell over the next table over. So it, it is a huge topic and it's one that's just, it's very hard to get people to invest in. You know, I, I'll tell people, you know, you have a, a budget for building out your business um, and you have the, the uh, most of the time, local jurisdictions are going to require that sound transmission is regulated, that, you know, people who live around you aren't going to have to hear what's happening in your factory or in your, uh, you know, your business. But... That's, that's just one aspect. The quality of work for the people working in the spaces is, um, is, is I, I think it's a bigger topic. It's like, you know, the transmission is like, maybe this is kind of annoying to someone who lives down the street. But in New York City, for example, like we have this huge problem with restaurants just being so loud. And uh, New York Times did a story, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, just about like measuring sound pressure levels in um, restaurants mostly and how uh, like just 
people working in restaurants were constantly exposed to higher than legal limits uh, SPL to like a job site in a factory. In factories, it's, it's regulated much more carefully. People have to wear hearing protection if they're over a certain um, level. But the restaurants are all over that level because it's very trendy to make your restaurant have subway tile and distressed mirrors and all these reflective surfaces that voices just bounce off of. And, uh, you know, when it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing that I think a lot of people undervalue. And I, I try to stress to um, business owners as much as possible, invest in the acoustician, you know, put soft materials that are not just, oh, I put some soft stuff because people do it wrong so often. They put an absorption panel that's just a piece of fabric with no insulation behind it. Do it properly and everyone, your customers will appreciate it. I mean, there are restaurants that I, some of my favorite restaurants, I just won't go to after seven o'clock because they're so loud. Um, I'm kind of sensitive, but I think there are quite a lot of people like this. So I think, I think it is a big topic that I hope people start to take more seriously. Thank you for your time. Listening to The Elephant in the Room, straight from Milan Design Week. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got some pointers out of it. And uh, see you next time to the next episodes. Speak later. <laughs>